0: Welcome to In Conversation, a series of dialogues with leading authors and speakers in the field of spirituality and healing. In Conversation is a production of Banyan Books and Sound, a gathering place of the world's wisdom traditions since 1970. Welcome everybody to the Banyan Books podcast in conversation today with Wade Davis. My name is Ross McKeechee. and uh, as usual we're going to do about an hour and 15 minutes today. We'll start out with an interview with Mr. Davis followed by the last half an hour where everybody will have a chance to submit their questions in the Q&A tab down at the bottom of your screen so feel free throughout the interview to think up your questions and type them in there and we'll get to many uh, as many of those as we can. So first off, a couple of announcements as usual. Uh, Although everybody is joining from around the world, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound at Fourth and Dunbar in Kitsilano, Vancouver is on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. So acknowledging that it includes the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. It's Banyan Books 50th anniversary. So Banyan has been an independent bookstore in operation for 50 years. That's a, a great accomplishment. And I just want to give a shout out to everybody who is working on the floor and in the back, every, every working piece for Banyan that makes it work. Big shout out to all of them. We're going to be talking about uh, Mr. Davis's book today, Magdalena, River of Dreams, and you can purchase that on Banyan's website, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com, Banyan.com. You can also go into the store and purchase, or you can make your order by phone. The shop is open every day of the week, so anywhere in the world you can order this book, support local independent bookstores, please. Now, our esteemed guest today, um, an amazing man. And when I was trying to put this intro together, there was just, there was, uh, it's too much to to wade through. Uh, He's accomplished so much, uh, had an amazing life. So I'll just try and give you a few key points. Mr. Wade Davis is an ethnographer, writer, photographer, and filmmaker. He is originally from West Vancouver, BC, Canada, but he grew up in Montreal. His degrees are in anthropology and biology, along with a PhD in ethnobotany, all from Harvard University. According to David Suzuki, our guest today is a rare combination of scientist, scholar, poet, and passionate defender of all life's diversity. He's an explorer in residence, or was an explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society, and they also named him as one of the Explorers of the Millennium. He's also one of 20 honorary members of the Explorers Club, author of 20 books, including One River, The Wayfinders, and Into the Silence. Now, Into the Silence won the 2012 Samuel Johnson Prize, which is the top award for literary nonfiction in the English language. Davis is currently a professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia he also holds the leadership chair in cultures and ecosystems at risk. In 2016, our guest was made a member of the Order of Canada. And in 2018, then President Juan Manuel Santos made him an honorary citizen of Colombia, which is the nation featured in his book, Magdalena River of Dreams, which is what I would describe as a biographical love story about the great Rio Magdalena and the Colombian nation, its history, people, terrors, and triumphs, a story of the culture and spirit of a fascinating and resilient country. And I have to say, truly, maybe one of the best books I've ever read. It was so captivating, and I really encourage people to read it. So everyone join me in welcoming Wade Davis. Thanks for joining us, Wade
1: thanks very much ross you know that line from david suzuki i should be giving david royalties on that
0: uh,
1: (laughs) so often and uh and i i should be paying you under the table for your kind remarks about the new book
0: (laughs) well it, it really is a wonderful book and like when i was doing some research into your life the scope of the book is huge um so can you just give our audience a bit of an understanding of what led up to the writing of this book and how did you approach the writing of it?
1: Well, it's, it is like all things, a long story. You know, I think travelers all, always fall in love with the first place that um, captures their heart and gives them license to be free. And, and for me, it was Columbia and the, and, and the sort of three arms, of the Andean Cordillera running away north to the Caribbean coastal plain the great Eastern Llanos or the plains that reach away to Venezuela and the Amazonian rainforest and the uh, Pacific forest of the Choco, uh, all these wetlands that sort of shimmer like great mirrors to the heavens, uh, everything kind of opened up a vista onto a wider world that I would spend the rest of my life exploring. And this sort of strange affair, this love between a boy, in a country and its people began innocently enough in 1968 when my mother, a uh, humble but determined Canadian woman, uh, told me that Spanish was a language of the future. And she worked very hard as a secretary in a, in a public school uh, to earn enough money to allow me to join a group of schoolboys that a language teacher was going to take to Cali, Colombia. And in 1968, at a time when most Canadians had never been in a commercial plane the South American destination was terribly exotic and at 14 I was the youngest of the group by a couple of years and in a way the most fortunate because whereas the older lads spent uh, a sort of a sweltering summer in the streets of Cali, billeted with quite affluent families by chance I was uh, billeted with a more modest family in the mountains above the city at the edge of trails that reached west to the Pacific and for most of the Uh, summer I never saw any of the other Canadian lads and uh, it was kind of a classic Colombian scene, you know, children too many to keep track of, an indulgent father, a grandmother who muttered to herself uh, on on a porch overlooking fruit trees and flower gardens, uh, 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 an angelic sister who more than once carried her brother and me home half drunk to a mother kind beyond words, who sort of stood by the garden gate, tapping her foot on the stone steps, uh, feigning anger as she welcomed us home. And uh, a lot of the other Canadian lads, it turns out, succumbed to what the Colombians call namitis, or homesickness. I, frankly, found that I I felt quite the opposite. I felt I had finally found home. Uh, There was something about the intensity of of, um, the the Latin culture and their understanding. They're quite understanding the frailty of the human spirit. They just captivated me. And then, uh, several years later, at the age of 19 or 20, I returned to, to Columbia with a one-way ticket, a small backpack of clothes, and, and just two books, Lawrence's Taxonomy of Vascular Plants, and Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. and at the time, I believed that bliss was an objective state that you could achieve simply by opening yourself unabashedly to the world. So both metaphorically and, and, and literally, I, I, I drank from every stream, including tire tracks in the road. And naturally I was constantly sick with dysentery and malaria. And, and yet even this seemed part of the process, these fevers that would rise in the night and break with the dawn. And once on a, on a moment's notice, I agreed to try to guide a journalist uh, 250 miles across the swamps and rainforests of the Darien, uh, we became lost <laughs> in the forest for, uh, at one point for 12 days with no food, when I finally I got through the other end and caught a flight, a small little flight to Panama City, I, uh, the, the girl beside me squeezed up at the back of this little tiny plane. Uh, we got in some turbulence and threw up all over me. Then her mother turned around to console her and she threw up on me. And I got off the plane in in Panama City with, you know, three dollars to my name, just the ragged clothes on my back, drenched in vomit, but I had never felt more alive. And uh, along the way, I fell into the orbit of this legendary botanical explorer, Richard Schultes, who had um, sparked the psychedelic era with the discovery of the magic mushrooms in Mexico in 1938, and then later he became sort of the greatest Amazonian explorer, a man for whom mountains would be named in Colombia, and he too had found his life in in that wonderful nation. And when it came around time for me to write what was essentially his biography, the book One River, Colombia had in some sense become a pariah nation. And by the time the book came out in the Spanish edition in 2002, uh, Colombia's very capacity to, um, uh, to, to endure had been called into question. And so the publication of a sort of a 650 page book on botanical exploration ought not to have warranted uh, much attention uh, in a time of existential crisis. But the great strength of the book um, was, a, was the power and beauty of the translation by a poet, Nicholas Sisquan. And, and the book became in a sense a, a map of dreams for two generations of young Colombians who were not allowed to travel as I had been in their own country because of the violence. And you know, this is a, the great saga of, of Colombia's recent history. You know, uh, 50 years of, of a three-way civil war uh, yet during all that time, um, the number of combatants have never numbered more than 300,000, so in a country of 50 million, most Colombians were mere uh, victims caught in the vice of war between um, the paramilitaries, the leftist guerrillas, and, and the army, and, you know, 250,000 dead, you know, 7 million internally displaced, 100,000 missing. And yet the real tragedy is that the war would not have lasted a day without the illicit money brought in by cocaine. You know, at the height of the cartel, the Midian cartel was putting 80 tons of cocaine a month into North America, generating 70 million dollars a day. The cartel accountants would budget 1,000 US dollars a week just to buy elastic bands, just to wrap the illicit money. And without that money, the war would not have lasted a day. To give you a sense of that, um, in the last year before the signing of the peace agreement in Cartagena in in 2016, the FARC, one of the dominant leftist groups, was down to maybe 6,000 cadre, mostly teenagers in search of a good meal. And yet they managed to earn that year through extortion and drug trafficking 600 million dollars. Well if you give me the Shaughnessy Boy Scouts uh, and 600 million dollars I can wreak havoc in British Columbia and this is precisely what happened. So in this sense um, the blood of innocent Colombians is very much on the hands of everybody you ever know have known Ross who's ever used illicit cocaine and it, every country that has facilitated the black market by prohibiting the drug while doing nothing serious to curb its use. Uh, imagine how um, Americans would feel, for example, if Canada had patterns of drug consumption in bars and boardrooms across the country, um, such uh, together with laws and, and, um, that, that kept alive the black market, such that Uh, 85 million Americans were forced to flee their home or their country. Well, that's exactly what happened in Colombia, and yet through all those years, Colombia managed to maintain civil society and democracy, green its cities, uh, create millions of acres of natural of national parks, seek restitution with indigenous people and like any other nation state and kind of pave the way for a, for an economic renaissance as two generations of young colombians forced to flee the country are now returning the skill sets uh, acquired in distant capitals in every conceivable uh, endeavor well the book one river was very warmly received in colombia because it it exposed those cruel hypocrisies even as it painted a portrait of a, of a country in total defiance of the dark clichés and the truth is that Colombia is not a place of violence and war it's a land of colores y cariño colors and and, and love uh, in which the the spirit of the people have have managed to survive particularly especially because of who they are it's a topography of their character that has allowed them to endure such uh, uh, abuse and such outrages you know you know we always talk about uh, you know, Columbia uh, as, as being sort of the source of the origin point of magical realism, which is seen as its great gift to Latin American literature. But you know, um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez or Gabo was a, actually a functioning and practicing journalist all his life. He was an observer um, who just happened to live in a land where heaven and earth come together on a regular basis to reveal glimpses of the divine. There is no place in Colombia more than a day removed from every known ecological niche to be found on planet earth. Uh, Cities that for much of their history uh, were were separated one from the other and connected only by the tracks of the muleteers, the arrieros who, who, who brought the produce from the highlands to the river and from the river back up into the highlands. And this is sort of the essence of the Colombian spirit uh, infused by a deep spirit of of place in a homeland that's the most bountiful in um, the world. The greatest geographical diversity, ecological diversity, and of course, the greatest biological diversity, except for Brazil, and of course, Brazil is a much bigger country, but Colombia has more species of birds, for example, than any other place on earth. And the defining feature, if you will, of Colombia is the Rio Magdalena. It runs south to north the length of the country. It's born in this rugged knot of mountains known as the Colombian Macizo, uh, from which emerge many of Colombia's great rivers, not just the Magdalena, but the Cauca, its great affluent, the Batia that flows into the Pacific, the Cacatá and the Putumayo, which are two of the great rivers of the Northwest Amazon. And then the Magdalena runs the length of the uh, of the country, but also out of the macizo emerge the three great arms of the uh, Andean Cordillera, which create such diversity as they run away to the Caribbean uh, coastal plain. Um, uh, 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 and, and the Magdalena itself, like the Mississippi, its shadow to the north, is both a corridor of, uh, of commerce and also a fountain of culture, the kind of the source of. Uh, Colombian uh, poetry and prayer and music and literature. In dark times, it has been the cemetery of the nation, a slurry slurry of the shapeless dead, but always it returns, always it maintains its loyalty to the people, always it flows. And to a great extent, this valley where four out of five Colombians live, a valley that generates 80% of the national wealth that encapsulates the entire history of the nation this valley is colombia colombia is a gift of the rio magdalena and the magdalena is the story of colombia so i set out to really write a biography of a nation uh, through the metaphor of its 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 greatest river and the actual field work over five years was sort of sociology inspired by serendipity i would just I traveled every corner of this immense um, valley uh, drainage, and I would just go to a place and wait around until I met somebody who had something to say that the world needed to hear, uh, which as Hemingway said, was the essence of good storytelling. And, uh, and along the way, I, the constant refrain was for to heal ourselves, you must heal the river, to heal the river, we must heal. Ourselves and I and I and I and I realize the extent to which not just the river was enmeshed in the identity of the Colombian people, but Colombia as a nation state is the only country I can name, literally born of a vision of natural history. We, we forget that where while George Washington was liberating a little sliver of land on the Atlantic uh, 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 coast of of what became the United States, the great liberator Simon Bolivar. In a war that lasted twice as long as Washington's fight with the British, uh, Bolivar would ride 75,000 miles, liberating not a coastline, but a continent. And in his saddlebags were the maps and journals of the great naturalist Alexander von Humboldt. Humboldt spoke of the Americas through the metaphors of you know, a universe of nature, but uh, Bolívar made those metaphors real, and so the country was born of a vision of its beauty, and that's how I came around with this idea that if we're going to ever clean up the nation's soul, we have to clean up the river, and to clean up the river, um, we must um, uh, uh, not, pr- not address the challenges at an environmental battle, but as a gesture of pure patriotic love, um, because the the, you know, peel back the, the, the moments in any day, um, the pages in the, the life story of any family, and you will always find the Rio Magdalena. It is a fountain of music. Carlos Vivas, the, the great, uh, probably Latin America's greatest musical star, who just won the Grammy a couple of weeks ago um, for his new um, venture, Cumbiana, uh, uh, once said to me, you know, you know, Cumbia is the mother of all our rhythms. And by the way, uh, Ross, Columbia is said to be the land of a thousand musical rhythms, but actually ethnomusicologists have identified 1,025. And if Cumbia, as Carlos said to me, is the, 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 the mother of merengue and poro and tambora and salsa, the mother of Cumbia is the Rio Magdalena.
0: Yes, you beautifully describe your your conversations with him in the book, and the music they describe comes from the natural world, the rhythms from the river, and everything, even the, everything in the culture, all these people you speak to, that's the thread, is everything really does come back to the river. Now, the thing I'm amazed by the most is truly the, the spirit of the Colombian people, which a few times in telling different stories, and just so our audience understands, this book is a combination of Wade's travels through the nation, which I believe took place over five years, along with stories of the history and encounters with people who tell their real life stories of them and their ancestors. The, it was amazing to me, the spirit of these people, which you uh, described a number of times as quixotic. Mm-hmm. This, 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 uh, um, wide vision that they would have to accomplish almost impossible things. Can you touch on that a bit and maybe tell us? Well, there, there,
1: there, the word surreal or phantasmagoric is used perhaps too often but but when we talk of magical realism it, it, it's sort of like you know uncertainty comes becomes clear and, and, and comforting through the, through the experience of, that is magical. And, and the world comes into focus through the lands of the phantasmagoric. There's a kind of a surreal quality to life in Columbia that it, it explains why when people will say to you, you know, what, what, what's so great about Columbia that I must go there? I could list any number of natural features. I could list any number of uh, ancient monuments, um, dazzling cities. Uh, brilliant cultural expressions, but when it comes down to it, really is the Colombian people. I, I mean, there is this guy I really like—a character in the book that I call Morita of the Manatees, and he was this impoverished kind of field hand uh, who just fell in love with manatees. These fantastic creatures of the lower reaches of the of the Magdalena—you know, where where the entire landscape is is essentially a series of amazing wetlands that just shine like mirrors to the heavens. And uh, he just fell in love with manatees and he, he drew his power from these animals and uh, he kept them alive in periods of drought. And, and they, they allowed him to be who he was. And uh, uh, he, he told me many stories, for example, of you know, just telling the paramilitaries to take off or the gorillas or whatever. But at one point uh, I was with him around a small, a small wetland And he remarked that he and the local school children had collected um, and found 75 distinct species of butterflies around that small little wetland. And I sort of said to him, you know, carajo, hombre, 75 butterflies, that's, you know, a third that we have in all of Canada. And you found them around this pond. And he said to me a typical lovely Colombian retort, which was, you know, ah, si, pero la cosa es que en Colombia tiene que entender que un mariposa solamente un flor que por volar, por eso tenemos tanto. And what he had said to me is, ah, yes, my friend, but you have to understand is that in Colombia, a butterfly is just a flower that's learned how to fly. That's why we have so many. And the, these kinds of, um, uh, you know, statements um, uh, uh, come up all the time, you know, these moments. I mean, at the very mouth of the... Of the river for example where there's a spit that runs out deep into the ocean for several miles uh, 30 feet wide uh, with, with great waves crashing over it on one side from the sea and the, and the, and the haunting um, slow-moving river that once carried the dead of the nation with vultures perched on top uh, coming down on the other side and these fishermen Live in these shacks just put together of, of bits and pieces of plywood, um, um, bleached gray by the sun. And a single wave could wipe away their lives, but they, as if in conscien- conscious um, uh, rejection of despair, they decorate these shacks with poetry. Um, you know, here one breathes free, you know. Uh, here everything is normal. And they fish at night, um, taking advantage of a north wind that always blows. And they make kites out of plastic garbage and great lines and with hooks and plastic bottles as weights to go way out into the north. And as they fish, they take on a kind of a heroic quality that that is is really um, resonant and true. Um, and then then you can be walking along in Santa Marta and you suddenly see, a Mamo, a sun priest of the Arahuacos or of the Kogi. Now the, these, these, are, these are descendants of the ancient Tirona civilization which carpeted the Caribbean coastal plain of Colombia at the time of the Spanish conquest. And in the wake of the conquest, the survivors fled into an isolated volcanic massif, the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, that soars to 20,000 feet, the highest coastal mountain range on earth. And over 300 years, these survivors reinvented their as from a warlike nation to a devotional culture of peace. And to this day, they remain ruled by a ritual priesthood. But the training for the priesthood is extraordinary. The young acolytes are taken away from their families, sequestered in the shadowy world of darkness for 18 years never leaving the environs of the men's sacred temple as they're enculturated in the values of their society, which maintain the idea that their uh, prayers and their prayers alone maintain the cosmic balance of the world. And having never even seen a horizon, they're suddenly taken on a journey after 18 years to the heart of the world where they see the beauty of the earth and they maintain that their rituals are essential to its um, well-being, and the priest who has trained them sort of says, you see, it's look at this, look at this beauty, it's as I've told you, it's as I've promised, the world really is that beautiful. And the the Arawakos and the uh, Wiwa and the Kogi, um, though living two hours from Miami Beach, uh, are the literal descendants of the sun priests, and they don't distinguish, for example, the blood that runs through your veins from the water that runs through a river and in that sense they're quite accurate because of course we all are part of the hydrological cycle as we die our blood that makes up most of our body will slip into the earth and eventually reach the sea as readily as a river reaches the ocean and uh, they do ritual payments from time to time at the mouth of the Magdalena and they also um, told me about the pilgrimages that the Um, the Mamos used to make all the way up to the headwaters of the Magdalena, well over a thousand miles, 1500 kilometers. And they would stop at every community and ascertain the health of the river and measure as they put it, the awareness and consciousness of the inhabitants by the relationship that they maintain with the river itself. And one of my oldest friends amongst the Atahuaco And I've been working with them since the 1970s. Mamo Camillo said something very profound one day to him. He says, La paz no vale nada si es solamente una manera uh, uh, en que los tres lados del conflicto pueden unificarse para mantener una guerra contra la naturaleza. Tenemos que hacer paz con todo el mundo. And what he said is, peace won't matter if it's only. An excuse for the three sides of the conflict to come together to maintain a war against nature. We have to make peace with the entire natural world. Well, you know it, it's interesting how these these ideas keep coming up. We, we met a fisherman in the town of Nueva Venicia, which is one of the floating fishing villages in one of the biggest of the wetlands, this vast inland sea called the Sierra Nova, the Sienega Grande de Santa Marta, and in this floating village in a classic Colombian way, um, the cats swim and the dogs are afraid of water. And in 2003, there was a terrible massacre and the paramilitaries just slaughtered 39 men. And as we asked the people at one point, you know, a fisherman I was talking to, you know, what, what could the, country, the government do uh, to, to offer some kind of retribution for all that has been suffered? And he began by saying, well, we need new houses. And then as we scribbled down some notes, he says, no, what, what's the point of houses if we don't replenish the Cienega? No, we need a healthy wetland here. And as we made, no, 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 that won't help. We need the rivers that come into the wetland to be cleaned and healthy. And as we scribbled down some more notes, um, he suddenly said, mierda, crajo, you know, shit, forget it. What we need is that the source of the rivers and the streams and the wetlands, the mother Magdalena herself, we must clean up her. and if we don't clean up that, we'll never clean our soul and we'll never clean up the nation. And you, you hear this theme again and again, I'll just read you one little short um, uh, passage from a, a very close friend of mine, Edmond Ferro, who, who um, is the director of the one museum in Colombia dedicated exclusively to the Valley of the Rio Magdalena in the old colonial town of Onda. And this is a straight quote from a tape recording i made of our interview and uh, this is what he said i'll never forget the moment when i first heard that the peace agreement had been signed in havana by chance i was at the very confluence of the rio cauca and the magdalena and the rio cauca is the great affluent of the magdalena uh the three three arms of the cordillera and so the Cordillera Oriental, which eventually forms a border with Venezuela, um, flanks the Magdalena. The Cordillera Central goes straight up the middle of the country and falls away to the coastal plain. And then to the west of that is the Rio Calca Valley, which then is moving on, flanked by the uh, Cordillera Occidental, which cuts off the great Forest of the Pacific from the rest of the country. By chance, I was at the very confluence of the Rio Calca and the Magdalena. I was completely overwhelmed by what I can only call geographical emotion, a sense of space, as if the spirits were emerging from the earth. I stripped off my clothes and placed my head in the river. As I stood in the sun, the water dripping down my naked body, I began to weep. Rivers of tears flowed as I realized that my son could grow up in a country at peace, a river that has known every tragedy that has carried the dead and all the misery of the nation that has suffered along with all Colombians, a river that I love so much. And there we were by its waters as peace came over the land. And I wanna stress the the way that Colombians have all suffered, you know, uh, you can be at dinner in in bogota with friends and it's very gay and happy but someone will suddenly say well my uncle was killed by the farc on that paramo and someone else at the table will say really my sister was held up there by, held up by by the farc too she luckily escaped and and they comment like this uh, as if they've just discovered that their relatives went to the same uh, boarding school together I mean that's how ubiquitous this suffering is and yet the spirit has never uh, been broken and and I want I want to stress that the, the genesis of all of this was the money of cocaine you know the the, the leftist groups that were that, that originated as part of that whole wave of revolutionary zeal of which Cuba and Camilo Torres and Che Guevara were a part in the late 50s. Those seeds were there. Um, and and the actual federal uh, state was weak and the army was small and the guerrillas could be anywhere at any time. And once they had access to that kind of money. And so because the state couldn't protect people, the Colombian, wealthy people, the ranchers created their own militias and those militias which eventually were become blood soaked and responsible for 80% of the killings in Colombia, they themselves couldn't be everywhere at all times. And yet the guerrillas could, they were free to strike at any point at any time. So the paramilitaries felt that they had to establish a presence to intimidate the ordinary Colombian so that no support would be given to the FARC or the ELNA or the m 9 or any of these leftist groups. And the tactic they settled upon was terror. You know, take a man, bind him into a tree, cut him up with a chainsaw and throw the pieces into the Rio Magdalena and word gets around. And that, 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 that kind of tactic of horror became the rationale for a level of barbarism. And yet I, I stress, that again, you know, the vast majority of Colombians were caught in the vice war, you know, condemned if they failed to assist a guerrilla band and, and certain to uh, uh, attract the attention of the army if they did, which would then in turn, draw in the ferocious retribution of the paramilitary. Now this is ancient history to some extent in Colombia, because we had two presidents, one of whom was able to at least demilitarize as a marauding force the paramilitaries and the other who um, put his entire reputation uh, on the line, Juan Manuel Santos, uh, to bring peace to the country by creating an agreement with the FARC that brought them out of the forest. That led to his being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize and deservedly so. But again, I stress, you you know, one of the things that we forget is the, the psychological impact on a, a nation that is defined as a pariah and portrayed only through the drama, dramatic series such as Narcos. You know, my, my close associate in writing this book, uh, 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 both as a character in the book and a, a comrade in, in, in research and, and a, a brilliant editor in the first drafts of the book, Sandra Uribe, a great artist, uh, and she was a young girl growing up in Medellin during the worst of Escobar's terror. And when she couldn't distinguish the color of the sound of bombs from the sound of thunder, at the age of 15, her parents sent her to live in Miami with a grandmother. And it was a very difficult passage for her, and she was made fun of for being from the country of Escobar by high school students in Miami Whose main social activity was the pursuit of illicit drugs, with Colombian cocaine being their drug of choice. And yet, Sandra had never seen, let alone used, cocaine as a child growing up in Medellin. So, so the, the point is that the the, the image that is um, uh, 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 that colors one's impressions of Colombia could not be more false. And it is it is it is simply outrageous uh, that the country uh, whose consumption of cocaine um, was largely responsible for all of Colombia's miseries remains the country um, most reluctant and uh, applying most pressure to avoid the one thing that Colombians desperately need, the cleansing stroke of legalization to break the back of the cartels Distinguish coca leaves from cocaine hydrochloride create a nutraceutical product. So, campesinos who are gonna grow coca because it yields a thousand times more revenue than any other plant, if we don't give them a legal market, um, it's very difficult to understand how this corrosive force of illicit drug trafficking will ever um, be be uh, swept off the body of a nation state that does not need or deserve that cancerous growth. Again, the fuel driving the conflict, uh, this cause of the rivers of blood is the consumption of cocaine, not its production.
0: Yeah, you stress that in the book and that's really important for everyone to understand that, uh, anybody who has used cocaine or con- can continues to use cocaine is, in fact, funding um, violence and terror. A, you're,
1: killing, a- you're killing people. You might as well be pulling a bullet. You know, you know, you know me, Ross, well enough that I'm a total libertarian on drugs. I mean, I think the war on drugs has been the most ridiculous folly in human history. A trillion dollars and 50 years on, we have more people using worse drugs in worse ways than ever before. Because of the war on drugs, the Americans have, unfortunately, a higher number of individuals in their population with criminal and arrest records than they do individuals who have college degrees. Uh, And the war on drugs began as a political maneuver by Richard Nixon to cleave the hippies and the blacks away from his so-called silent majority. And Erlichman books make that very clear. And so the war on drugs is is, uh, the most grotesque folly in probably the history of of, uh, not just the United States but of the nation states.
0: Yeah. I'll just take a moment to remind our audience that uh, please put in any questions you have for Wade into the Q&A tab and we'll be getting to those questions in a little bit. Now, uh, we're talking about America and its contribution to every, all the violence in Columbia. Um, Bringing it to another topic, present day, you wrote an essay for Rolling Stone titled The Unraveling of America and I had a chance to read that last night and it's a wonderful essay and as you were telling me before the interview started, maybe the most widely seen um, article that Rolling Stones ever put out, with a, a huge reaction from people. Can you tell us a bit about it?
1: Yeah, it had a it had a bizarre impact. On, I mean, you talk about going viral. Well, it trended on their site, number one or number two for five weeks, and attracted five million readers on the site. But but on the on the internet, it generated. Um, as of more than a month ago, uh, 362 million social media impressions of people, you know, uh, sharing it
0: and- uh, Almost the population of the US.
1: Right, and visitations to my Wikipedia site, you can monitor all this stuff, I didn't know until this happened. Uh, went from about 150 a day to 4,000 a day. It just hit this nerve. And what it was, it wasn't an anti-American um, uh, polemic by any means. It was, it was a love letter to America, but it, in the guise of an intervention, in the sense that the only way you can um, you know, turn around a family member is, is showing them a mirror to see how far they've fallen. Uh, and that's the first path on, step on the path of rehabilitation and what what the piece did is it looked at COVID not as a public health challenge or as a pandemic per se uh, or, um, or biological phenomena even it, it looked at it as kind of through the cultural lens as to what COVID revealed about America and one of the things it revealed was the, was the, um, the, 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 the kind of a, the tattering of any lingering sense of America's exceptionalism. You know, in a a single season of pestilence, uh, Americans woke up to find themselves living in a failed state um, led by a dysfunctional government at the head of which was a buffoon of a president uh, advocating the use of disinfectants to treat a serious disease that was killing 2000 people a day but a disease that he intellectually couldn't begin to understand. Um, And uh, as as American healthcare workers in their desperation awaited emergency flights of fundamental supplies from swabs to protective gear from China, um, the hinge of history opened to the Asian century. And and one perceptive journalist from the Irish Times um, quip that, you know, many emotions have been expressed about America since um, uh, the Second World War, but one that has never been expressed but is being expressed now is pity. And, you know, I, I tried to trace the, 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 the unraveling of America, um, you know, in the wake of World War II, a war that was won by American industrial capacity. I mean, the scale of it is just astonishing. I mean. Uh, one factory in Detroit made more tanks than the German Third Reich. You know, uh, Henry Ford produced every two hours on an assembly line, a B-24 with 1.5 million uh, uh, parts. Uh, We produced Liberty ships by the hour. Uh, The record was four days and 19 hours and so many minutes to lay one down. For every uh, uh, five pounds of equipment, the Japanese Empire of the Sun per capita got to a frontline soldier in the Pacific War, the Americans got uh, two tons. Uh, The production was such that um, we didn't just become the arsenal of democracy. We could reflexively send half a million trucks to the Russians, half a million Jeeps to the Russians, a million miles of wiring, uh, 35 million uniforms, vast stores of food um, and boots. The Russian uh, armies um, defeated the Germans on the battlefield, rivers of Russian blood being the uh, sacrifice. But they marched into Berlin on boots made in America, 15 million pairs altogether. And then, in the wake of the, um, the war, America never stood down. Uh, to this day, they're a, a country that was demilitarized at the eve of the war. In 1940, Britain had, I mean, America had a smaller army than Portugal or Bulgaria, and in the wake of the war, it never stood down. And, um, uh, you know, since 2000 alone, we spent $6 trillion on military adventures at a time when, um, you know, America's never been at peace since the 1970s. China's never been at war. Uh, we've spent six trillion dollars on adventures. they've been building their country pouring more cement every three years than America built us uh, poured in the 20th century. And, and in the immediate wake of World War II, in a time of enormous um, 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 uh, economic well-being, because the rest of the world was prostrate, Um, and uh, America, 6% of the population generated half the world's economy, 93% of the automobiles were built in America after the war. Um, That allowed for a truce between labor and capital. It gave us the working class, it gave us um, the weekend, it gave us um, an opportunity for a man with limited education to look forward to owning a house, owning a car, raising a family um, and, and having a good life. And, and that kind of social contract was shattered over two generations as globalization was um, uh, celebrated with iconic intensity when, at a time when every working man and woman could see that globalization was just capital on the prowl in search of cheap labor. Meanwhile, the cult of the individual in America, uh, which is sort of the soci- you know, liberating the individual from the collective gave us great freedom and mobility Uh, But it was a sociological equivalent of splitting the atom and suddenly the community suffers. The very idea of society is called into question. Um, Divorce rates soar. Uh, uh, Elders are shuffled off into old folks' homes such that only 6% of children have grandparents beneath the same roof. Uh, the obsession with work. Slogans like "24/7" means the average American father spends 20 minutes a day with each child. A child who, by the age of 18, has spent two years watching video games, contributing to an epidemic of obesity. The Joint Chiefs are calling a national security crisis. Um, the the um, the the Americans end up consuming two thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs, and now the highest cause of mortality for those under 50 is in fact opioid addiction. And at the same time, fundamental American values are called into question. The country that heralded the freedom of the press now ranks 45th when it comes to press freedom. The country that created the idea of public education now has dozens of cities that do not graduate more than 50% of the high school class despite diminishing standards a country that defines personal freedom as an individual's right to own an arsenal of weaponry trumping even the safety of children who get killed in schools you know it, it, on d-day uh, june 6th when we the allies invaded europe 4414 uh, lives were lost on the allied side in uh, 19, 2019 that many americans have been killed by each other by handguns by april of, of that year. You know, we once welcomed the huddled masses of the world. That was sort of the metaphor, the, the myth, the moral charter upon which the country was founded. Now we, um, we uh, separate children from their mothers at the Mexican border as we propose building not just a folly, but a wall that actually serves as an act of treason. Because if you think about it, treason isn't just betraying, secrets state secrets to an enemy it's when you betray the foundation of who you are and that is what indeed that that uh, wall represents. And by the same token when Americans flaunt their individuality by ignoring public health recommendations, putting their fellows at risk, um, that's not a that's not a sign of strength it's an expression of weakness of a society that, Lacks the stoicism to endure the pandemic or the fortitude uh, to defeat it. And when both in 2016 and 2020, um, you know, up to 70 million Americans chose to elect Donald Trump, uh, voting really their grievances, because everybody knows the man has no credentials for the job. All he had going for him was his willingness to uh, rationalize the grievances, indulge the hatreds, and target the enemies real and imagined. And when a people take their precious right to vote that casually, I think it's a sign of um, incredible um, decadence. And you know, the truth of the matter is, empires are born to die. Every kingdom fails to anticipate its demise. The the You know, the 16th century, the, um, uh, the 15th century rather belonged to the Portuguese, the 16th to the Spanish, the 17th to the Dutch, the 18th to the French, the 19th to the British, and the British Empire reached its greatest geographical extent in 1935. Um, but we now know, of course, that the 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 the, the, the economic uh, viability of of the empire had slipped by the Diamond Jubilee, and of course the country. The empire was bankrupt and bled white by the great war. So this isn't to say that one looks forward to the uh, end of the American era, uh, given the values that inspired the world and given what awaits us if the weight of history and the hinge of history does open to a Asian century with China's um, record on human rights, its record on issues of democracy, press freedom, the legitimacy of ethnic minorities—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, Orwellian use of uh, social capital to measure degrees of orthodoxy amongst its people—you uh, know—traits that perhaps a nation that favors stability beyond all other um, uh, qualities um, may be un- may be um, understood to indulge. But I certainly. Uh, will be nostalgic for the best years of the American century. You know, the end of America is no time to gloat. Uh, It's nothing to celebrate. Uh, A country uh, that saved civilization literally uh, with its industrial might during World War II. The country that gave us Lincoln, who called for, you know, charity towards all and malice towards none. Uh, Washington, who famously could not tell a lie. The visionary uh, uh, documents of of Monroe and Madison and and Jefferson all the complexities of the of the American experiment uh, l- led in turn to this man who cannot recognize the truth who practices charity for none and malice towards all this bone spur of uh, a, of a warrior the, the this buffoon of a president recommending the use of of um, of uh, you know, disinfectants to treat this disease. Um, a man who lies as reflexively as he breathes the air. And yet the haunting thing about America today is that um, 70 million Americans voted for him in 2020, uh, eight million more than voted for him in 2016. If you look at the, uh, the electoral map of the country, uh, the chasm is so broad, you know, the, the, the blue states, uh, with the exception of the handful of the states that we paid such close attention to, Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, um, uh, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, all the other states were either won by one side by huge pluralities, um, or, or the other by huge pluralities. So there is this sort of chasm that, that's going to be very difficult, I think, for the, for the states to... Um, uh, to bridge, and and one of the problems is that um, they have lost sense of um, their own uh, common space. You know, I, I tried to explain this by using an allegory from uh, um, in Canada, getting your groceries. You know, you get, you go to the grocery store in in the states, and there's kind of a social, economic, um, r- r- racial, and even you know educational chasm between you and the checkout person that's pretty hard to bridge and so you know and you don't feel that in Canada because you may not be peers but you're members of the bigger community and why is that it's because you know that the checkout person in Canada is getting a decent wage because of the unions and you know that their kids probably go to the same public school as your kids schools that aren't funded by property taxes which favor the children of the affluent but taxes that are granted by the state so that every kid has an equal opportunity. And of course, thirdly, that they know that you know that if they get sick, they'll get the same medical care as you and indeed the prime minister. And those three strands woven together become the fabric of social democracy. And the Americans don't understand that universal health care is not about public health. It's not about medicine. It's about social solidarity. It's about sending a message to everybody counts. I mean, Canada is no perfect place, but we still respect our institutions. We still recognize that wealth ultimately is not the currency accumulated by the lucky few, but the strength of social relations and the bonds of reciprocity that bind all of us into a common purpose. Uh, you know, in, in the wealth, the dispa- in, in the states, the disparities of wealth has become so obscene My father-in-law was a CEO in the 1950s. His salary would have been 20 times that of a staffer. Today, that chasm would be 500 times. Uh, You know, the top 1% of Americans uh, control $30 trillion of assets. The lower half of the um, population has more debt than assets. The three richest Americans have more wealth than the poorest 160 million and those kinds of economic uh, discrepancies, inequities uh, simply cannot be sustainable um, in any country that aspires to democracy. And social democracy is not communism light as the Americans like to think of it. Um, Social democracy is dynamic, vigorous entrepreneurial capitalism that just happens to focus its benefits ideally and aspirationally on all tiers of the society, so in that in that sense, um, uh, I think that can also explain. And of course, COVID was a lens that that, that or, or a window that kind of lay bare at all this stuff. You know, I mean, on July 30th, in the day when the Americans announced almost 60,000 cases of COVID, a figure that has been supplanted now uh, uh, many times over, but on that same day in all of our hospitals in in British Columbia, we had but five cases of COVID. Now, BC is a metropolitan center, it's an Asian city, it's three hours up the road from Seattle, dozens of flights coming in in from Asia, but something worked here. And I think what worked in a sense was our uh, solidarity. You know, you would never have a Canadian running against Ottawa, that would be a psychotic um, uh, thing to do. Uh, you know, I, I, had a, I had a wonderful experience, Ross, when my, my mother was 85 in was Victoria. you
0: get to this story. I love this.
1: Yeah, my mother was 85 and uh, living alone in an apartment in, um, in uh, Victoria when she got a headache on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. By 2 o'clock that afternoon, she was being prepped for neurosurgery, and she was operated on by an immigrant, a brilliant Indo-Canadian neurosurgeon who saved her life. And by the time my sister and I got to the ICU, um, my mother was sort of in in coma and you know in recovery, but she had survived. And adjacent to her, in the one other bed in the, that ICU, was a young girl from Manitoba, surrounded by her Mennonite family. And my sister and I were thinking, you know, we could have afforded to pay for this service. My sister's a lawyer; I've done well. Uh, But that Mennonite family from Manitoba might have faced a choice in another jurisdiction between the well-being of their family and the health of their beloved daughter. And fundamentally, in a social democracy, and certainly in Canada, we say that that's not a choice that any of our people should ever have to face. And, uh, you know, as you may know, Ross, the Empress Hotel, the fanciest hotel in Victoria, uh, had a policy where every... Uh, Canadian who had a member, a family member in an ICU, got a free room for the night. So after the nurses kicked both families out of that uh, hospital uh, unit, uh, we all roared down to the Empress Hotel and we gathered together two families in the old Bengal lounge. And I bought my sister a glass of wine and they don't drink. So I bought Mennonite family, uh, you know, juice or whatever they wanted, hot tea, whatever. And, um, but then we did a toast. And we didn't toast our loved ones who'd survived the day, although they were certainly in our hearts. And we didn't even toast that extraordinary uh, neurosurgeon who had gifted Canada with his presence by moving here only in time, if you will, as we saw it, to save the lives of a daughter and a beloved mother. But what we toasted was our country. And again, not because the country had provided universal health care that allowed us not to worry about the bill but rather because it was our country that had brought these two families together in this moment. Two families from utterly different ends of the Canadian political, geographical, um, rural-urban divide, and of course the religious divide, brought them together in this moment of grace where we were as one as Canadian people. And in that moment, is the strongest sense I've ever had as to the essence of our muted Canadian patriotism. We don't waste our time with flag wrapped chauvinistic cant. Uh, You can't imagine a Canadian politician wrapping him or herself in a flag. We didn't even have one until 1965. And then the country came to a standstill as we argued about one or three maple leaves. No, Our, our, our patriotism, and again, not that we're a perfect country and and, and nor have we been perfect in our treatment of COVID. We've got rates going up, of course, but we did a heck of a lot better, and I think that's because there is a sense of, uh, of community, of common purpose, of engagement, which, which explains why, for example, immigration continues to haunt the United States, whereas we live quite comfortably in a country in which our biggest city has half of its population made up of individuals, not just from different ethnicities, but individuals literally born outside of Canada. And I think most Canadians, although there are a few uh, obviously racist individuals in any um, large country, but I think the, the, the record shows that most Canadians understand that that has helped us become a better society a more pluralistic country a much more interesting country to live in and a richer country both in terms of business entrepreneurial zeal um creative arts and 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 the poetry and passion of being a nation state
0: we'd uh um i'd like to try and get to some audience questions here if you're okay with that you bet um and i'll encourage people to keep sending them in in the q a tab and we'll get to as many as we can so the first one we have here is from Belinda and she's wondering what is the story of the name of the river Magdalena? Where does that name come
1: from? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. It's a wonderful story. And it, it actually is the epilogue of the book. Um, uh, Sandra and I, my close friend, who's a big figure in the book, as I said, were um, up at a beautiful shrine that many of you may know who do know Columbia. Montserrati which kind of glows over the heights of Bogota a thousand feet above the city uh, it was sacred land of the Muisca um, it was a fulcrum of the sun at the solstice and uh, it's a very beautiful but humble um, site um, appropriate for being originally a hermitage and uh, we were having a um a, a, a Cup of uh, chocolate con queso in a local cafe. And Sandra reflected, uh, 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 her mind was still on the river. And she said, You know, it's funny. Um, you know, we call this river the Rio Magdalena, which was perfect for what the river was and what it can still be, but strange because at the time it was named, Maria Magdalena, she said, had a less than stellar reputation. And of course, in the sixth century, Pope Gregory, in a notorious sermon, had had um, um, depicted Maria Magdalena as a woman of the night, a prostitute, who only through the good grace of uh, Jesus was allowed to sort of serve him and uh, wipe his feet with her hair and 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 soak them with her tears. But as Sandra pointed out. Um, Uh, uh, there was a repentant prostitute in Christ's entourage but her name was Mary of Bethany and for 1400 years the church had focused its contempt and its zeal on on the wrong woman and the truth of the matter is Maria Magdalena was neither mother neither wife nor woman of the night who was his most devoted companion she was with him In his death, at his side, um, in his resurrection, she was honored by him to carry the word of the glory of his resurrection to the side of God. And she was in in every way, as her name would suggest, Magdala, meaning in Aramaic, the watchtower. She was indeed the watchtower of the world. She was a tower of strength in the early years of Christianity. And she was, in fact, the apostle of all the apostles. And it was only in 1969 that the Roman Catholic Church removed the scarlet letter of sin from her chest. And only in 2016, the year of the peace agreement, that Pope Francis finally acknowledged her for what she was, the apostle of the apostles. As Jesus said, the one and only, and as Sandra told me that story, she said, and it's just like our river. You know, for years we abused it and, and uh, took it for granted and soiled its water. And, but think in the case of Maria Magdalena, um, you know, billions of people now, be they Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican, or Roman Catholic faith, revere her as a saint. And Sandra said, it's just like our river why can't we do the same for a river to transform its destiny with our tears, with our prayers? And in doing so, we will transform our lives and heal our souls. And as she told me that story, right at that moment, a small yellow bird landed at our table, uh, pecked at the crumbs, and then darted off into the cloud forest. And that's how the book ends.
0: not a uh doesn't give away anything it's still a a really good book to read just because you know the ending folks please get this book yeah we're not
1: talking about a mystery story here (laughs)
0: mystery story that's right now the next question is from anna and she says how do you think the new generations of colombians have inherited or experienced the collective trauma of the height of violence
1: I, I think that's a that's a really important question on both multiple levels. Um, you know, there is a very active and uh, earnest reconciliation process in Colombia, um, and uh, y- you know, it's one of these things where you know uh, Cl- Colombians are so exhausted by war, um, and um, the conflict is, will still um, um, it, it, won't, it it's complicated, but peace will never be broken as it had been in in the previous years. But, but, you know, again, the the psychological impacts of of being uh, treated like a pariah nation, um, uh, I think that's one of the reasons that um, I've been given a a kind of a a standing in Colombia that is frankly, um, out of all proportion to what I deserve. But on the other hand, if you, uh, in the preface to the book, I tell an anecdote of how a friend of mine, Carolina Barco, was the Colombian ambassador to Washington DC. Now she had been the external affairs minister in, um, in Colombia. Her father was a beloved president of Colombia, and now she's a diplomat. And yet at Washington Dulles Airport, she was strip searched, simply because she had a Colombian passport and she her diplomatic credentials and objected to the treatment, uh, the local customs official um, barked an obscenity at her as if uh, uttered from the mouth of a dog. And if that's the way that the American customs, for example, treats um, the highest representative of the Colombian nation, imagine how a young Colombian feels when they're uh, traveling around the world and, and seeing being seen as if they're, they're nothing more than a, a coming from a land of drugs and violence and cartels and all the, the nonsense you see um, on, on on Netflix. And so I think the, the, the impact has been very strong and the reason you know the reason that um, both my first book El, One River or El Rio but especially this new book has hit such a nerve is that I don't shy away from the violence on the contrary I explain it and explain it with great intensity uh, and, and, um, uh, and passion, uh, but with empathy. Uh, and there are passages in this book that are, that are hard to imagine that they actually happened, uh, but they did. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm painting a picture of the, the, of the full complexity of the nation. And for that, Colombians are, are, I think, very grateful. Um, you know, my book, One River, was selected by the National Library as um, as one of the first of twenty five the first twenty five of the two hundred books that will be selected as the most important books in the history of the country for the two hundredth anniversary of independence, um, and 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 because of this sort of uh, position I have I, 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 I have a responsibility and an opportunity and I think in many ways um, as I said to Ross earlier. Um, the book Magdalena is, is an important book because it's not just, it's not a travel book and it's not just a biography it kind. Of, it's like a mirror that holds, it explains the world but it also holds a mirror to the Colombian people themselves uh, celebrating and revealing uh, so much that's wondrous in their lives. And the biggest enemy of peace is pessimism and despair and negativity uh, and and anything we can do to, inspire Colombian peoples um, to recognize as, you know, again, as Lincoln said, the angels of their nature can only help um, a peace process that's delicate. The peace process is delicate for a couple of reasons. Still, the poison of cocaine remains. Um, secondly, prices of oil dropped, Colombia's main source of foreign uh, exchange at a time when the implementation of the peace agreement of 2016 uh, had a price tag of $45 billion, Uh, even as Colombia, without a a hint of hesitation has absorbed the greatest humanitarian crisis in the history of the Americas. Whereas the Americans, again, to be simply honest, um, have turned away desperate mothers by the score at their Southern border mothers escaping the same violence caused by the American consumption of drugs, that the trafficking of which has all moved to Central America, nation states like Guatemala, Salvador, and and, and Nicaragua that were torn asunder in the 1980s with America's obsession at fighting against the so-called communist influence in those nations, Uh, All that turmoil, again, can be laid at the hands of U.S. foreign policy and drug consumption, but we are turning away mothers and breaking up families, whereas in Colombia, at a time of its greatest need uh, for its own national survival and recovery and regeneration, uh, they have absorbed 1.8 million Venezuelan refugees, and they haven't separated families. house families, they've fed families, they've schooled the children, they've offered medical care to all. It's an extraordinary gesture of grace that Columbia has not gotten sufficient credit for. Uh, so, so um, you know, anything we can do to support the Colombian people in their um, uh, complex walk towards peace and a better time for the young, uh, we, we really have to do.
0: The next question we have is from Arnim. And he's he's saying, what is the biggest new threat and opportunity for Colombia as a new world is evolving? New threat and opportunity.
1: Well, I think the 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 great opportunity for Colombia is as a nation awakens to its greatest national strength, which is the land itself, the mountains, the rivers, the paramos, the the endless forests of the Amazon. Look, uh, if there's one peace dividend coming out of this 50 years of conflict, it's the fact that much of the country, um, which is a vast country, uh, was off limits for industrial development because of the conflict. And so whereas a neighboring nation like Ecuador that made choices about its Eastern lowland forests in the 1970s, when I was first there, um, developing oil extraction, building pipelines, encouraging colonization, leading to deforestation, such that today those forests have been torn asunder. Uh, The Colombian Amazon, though now imperiled, uh, remains essentially a roadless expanse of the most beautiful forest in the Amazon basin. uh, And it's roughly the size of the country of France. And so as Colombians were free to move in the wake of the peace agreement, they've woken to the realization um, that that peace has given the nation a reprieve and an opportunity to uh, chart its way forward, making decisions informed by 50 years of scientific research as to the importance of biodiversity and the importance of cultural diversity uh, that simply wasn't available to the Ecuadorian governments of the time when they made those fateful decisions that determined the plight of the Oriente of Ecuador. So, this is what Mamo Camillo said everything hanging in the balance. It is time to make peace with the entire natural world. And one of the encouraging things in Colombia is that um, these two issues, biological diversity and cultural diversity, are being recognized in a way that they simply weren't before. I mean, you know, even when I was a young student in the 1970s, if, if parents of my friends um, would learn that I was going up to live with the Arawakos in the Sierra Nevada, um, they would say, Por qué quiere vivir con gente sucia? why do you want to live with the dirty people? Yeah. Well, now the last five Colombian presidents before Duque as a first gesture before taking office have been to fly to the Mamos to pay homage to um, uh, to what they represent as symbols of continuity and peace speaking from the heart of the world about our need not just as a species but as a Colombians but as a species to protect the natural world And, and 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 even the two sides of the conflict if you will the far right and the far left are coming together in many areas to protect the landscape, which people, and this is why we are promoting, in a sense, the Magdalena as a symbol of the country and calling for its regeneration, not as an environmental initiative, more regulations that will only be ignored, but rather as a statement of national patrimony and and patriotism, because if you accept the fact that the Magdalena, that Columbia is a gift of the river, then to, then to rehabilitate the river is the supreme act of patriotism. And by the same token, to continue to abuse a river would be seen in a sense as an act of treason. So we're, at least poetically, that's the way we're trying to pre- present this. And of course, one thing that COVID did teach us in a wonderful way is that we're biological beings on a living planet and that the earth is incredibly resilient. Rivers in particular, you just have to leave them alone and they'll come back. So you know, both the uh, the River Hudson, Hudson River, and the River Thames were in much worse shape than the Magdalena not fifty years ago, and now, of course, they've come back to life. So this is kind of the um, um, one of the subtexts of the book.
0: Wonderful, and you've with that answer, you've answered a few other questions that people have submitted about the process of cleaning up rivers locally here in BC and other parts of the world and how we can take inspiration from Colombia. One really inspiring thing in your book, as you mentioned, the uh, groundbreaking legal decision to make, uh, was it the Rio Cauca that was made? Oh, the Rio Atraco. Rio, Rio Atraco that was acknowledged as a living entity with legal rights.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, 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 you one of the things that you, you, you find in Colombia, you um, you know, the finest universities, the finest institutions of, of, of museums and research institutions, uh, the finest Spanish spoken, I would say, in the world. Uh, the intellectual capacity, the, the entrepreneurial spirit um, is remarkable. And, um, uh, um, you know, if, if this can be uh, 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 channeled for the collective well being of the nation. Uh, almost anything's possible.
0: We're just getting to our time here Wade and I want to thank you so much for joining us and leave you with one question um, to answer which is uh, just reading this book and looking at your body of work which I've been aware of since I was a kid I'm, I'm grateful my parents had your books on the shelf and my in my my bedroom had been the library before I was born so you there were a few of your books on the shelf. So I've known you for a long time. Um, Looking at your body of work, the adventurous exploratory spirit that you embody um, and the the work that you've put out, which, you know, unites us in our diversity on this planet. Uh, I'm just wondering what, what words would you, would you give for anybody listening, but particularly young folks that might look at the world today and feel a sense of hopelessness about what's happening. Could you just uh, impart some wisdom for us?
1: Well, I'm not sure I can impart any wisdom, but <laughs> I'm, old, I'm old, old enough from what you told me about your bedroom that I suppose I should ha- have something to say. <laughs> Look, I, I, I think um, I always say that, you know, pessimism is an indulgence, um, despair and insult to the imagination, just as orthodoxy is the enemy of invention. You have to do, what needs to be done, and then ask whether it was possible or permissible. There's a there's a one of my favorite passages in the book, is when I talk about uh, the bitterness of, of Gabo of of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who, who 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 for whom the river was a sacred vessel, for whom it wasn't just a setting for two of his great novels; it was literally a character in two of his great novels. And he, you know, in his memoirs, he wrote about the the, the death of the river and and um, in truly apocalyptic terms and how the river of used when youth was never anymore and, and the, the, i begin that passage by saying what is life but a story we lose the power of comprehending as we get old the truth is that gabo's entire experience of that river spans two decades uh, where there were great ecological impacts but of course forests can grow back creatures even brought back from the brink of extinction. All that's really disappeared uh, is one brief uh, set of memories of one individual. And the robber of memory is in fact, the one who denies to generations coming up from below the opportunity to live life um, and to know life on their own terms and to celebrate life on their own terms. There is nothing more tedious than someone my age says to a young person, oh boy, you missed it. It used to be so great, too bad. I mean that is just pure horseshit. Uh, you know, I mean one of the most nauseating one is when you hear people talk about the 1960s. I mean just look at the 1960s. Uh, more women look like Trisha Nixon, I can promise you, than Joni Mitchell. Look at, <laughs> Woods, look, at, look at the film Woodstock and all you want to do is go and have a bath. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the, now the, there's, you can't rob from the young, the promise of their own dreams, and uh, um, and uh, uh, you know, um, uh, it is true as a a a wonderful native person said to me, you know, you know, uh, when you're young, you're too old, you're you're you're, you're, you're you're too young to understand the world around you. When you get old, you're too old to understand the world coming at you from below. And in between, he said, there's a narrow sliver of light that illuminates your life. And that's when you have to decide whether to uh, go blind with bitterness or stay alive with hope. One of the, uh, the only piece of advice I'd leave with young people is something I learned from my father. Uh, who was not a religious man, but he was a deeply ethical man. And he believed in good and evil, not in a Christian sense, but just because that's what the world and history seems to show us. And, you know, we, we have this idea in Christianity, the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, that, you know, if we just work hard enough, we're going to vanquish evil. You know, we have the image of the Christ child and then the fallen archangel, the devil, and we bring them into combat with the hope that, you know, good will prevail. But well, it's very, very different than, than the Buddhist or the Eastern um, um, point of view. You know, when, when clerics, for example, in, in uh, medieval France would ask the obvious question, uh, if God is all powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? If they asked that question, they were deemed to be heretics and burned at the stake. But in the Vedic traditions, when Lord Krishna was asked that very question by a disciple, if God's all-powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? With a wink, Lord Krishna said, to thicken the plot. In other words, good and evil, as my father said, always have existed and always will exist and exist right now. So pick your side, son, and get on with it. And that was really tremendous advice for me because I, it's true that every book I write has to be driven by some passion. You know, books, <clears throat> you know, Hemingway said, anyone who says that, you know, writing is easy is either a bad writer or a liar. It's hard to write a book <clears throat> and at least I have to, to maintain the level of intensity of the prose have to feel some kind of mission in the work. Uh, and, and that's been the case certainly of every book I've written indeed every, essay I've ever written. Uh, um, and at the same time, I never expect to win. You know, it's like the, meta, the, the metaphor from Buddhism, you know, the destination of the pilgrim is not a place, but a state of mind. Uh, um, uh, and, and if you realize you're not going to ever win, and you're not going to ever get to this place of vanquishing evil, but rather you, that, that the path is the, the life work and you have to keep going, but have no expectations of winning anything. You'll win some, lose some, but you're not on the path to win or to lose. You're on the path, because as my father would say, the path of good is the path of righteousness. And if you embark on that path, um, you will cross the road of the, the, the dark side. But and sometimes it'll it'll nip at your heels and sometimes it'll beat you down. But you always have to get back up, and that I think is really a key for happiness in old age. You know, I have as much energy and zeal for new ideas and experiences and adventures and loves that I that I had when I was twenty, um, and uh, uh, I, I I don't I. I um, I look around at my generation and I always see that bitterness comes to those who look back on a life of decisions or compromises they've made or decisions imposed upon them. The most important challenge for a young person um, is to be the architect of your own life. Um, uh, If you're the architect of your own life, then every decision in the end you own and Therefore, the person you become is your creative, your greatest creative um, uh, endeavor. And bitterness uh, never comes to those content in that level of creativity. So you have to understand that, you know, creativity is not the motivation of action, it's a consequence of action. Do what needs to be done and then ask whether it was possible. Um, you know, um, um, recognize that despair is an insult to the imagination, um, pessimism uh, and indulgent. Um, um, you know, um, when, you, when you have an opportunity, uh, take it. Um, as Jim Whitaker says, if, you, if you're not living on the edge when you're young, you're taking up too much space jump off every cliff and you discover that you land on a feather bed not hard cold rocks but above all um, be patient and give your destiny time to find you
0: wonderful and someone who's truly living that destiny many good books his most recent magdalena river of dreams the story of Columbia, I encourage everyone to read this book. It's gripping, fantastic. I wept many times reading it, and I laughed and celebrated along the way. A reminder, you can get it at our website, Banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com, or at our physical location, Banyan Books and Sound at West Westforth and Dunbar in Kitsilano, Vancouver. Wade Davis, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Ross, and good luck to the bookstore. It's a wonderful institution for all of us.
0: It is indeed. You have been listening to In Conversation, a podcast
1: with Banyan Books and Sound.